Amen. Oh, such sweetness to be found here in these gems and jewels and gold bars that we're stumbling across as we dig into this text. What a blessing to be able to share in this good news with you all. This was the best good news at the very beginning when everything was good. When Adam had the good news that God was making him a perfect helper to come alongside him, when God's perfect bounty was all around them and he said, you may freely eat. It was so good. <laughs> but we're going to see it take a dark turn in chapter 3 today, a dark turn that we're all familiar with. We've taken the same dark turns. We've tried in dark ways to resolve dark issues, and we can't do it. And we're going to see a glimpse of hope as God, the resolver of every issue, will also be the one who resolves this main problem. We'll talk more about that in the afternoon lesson. I encourage you to come back at four if you can make it for that. When we see the consequences of sin and at the same time a glimmer of hope at the darkest hour in man's history, God is right there and offering up the light that we know of as the Christ. Thank you so much for allowing me to be a part of this weekend with you. Thank you for coming out and supporting this effort. I'm so encouraged I thought I was coming to a congregation that I knew, but the majority now are not people that I knew. But I still, we've made us feel right at home. This is, this is our family, and we just feel like you've always known us. And so we're thankful uh, to you for your hospitality and that and just making us fit right in. It is the word of God that unites us, and it's such a blessing to share in it together. We're in chapter 3 now of Genesis. We've been seeing God's nature in Genesis chapter 1. We've been looking at our nature, the way God made us, and this dual nature of dust of the earth and the spirit that comes from him, the roles he's given us as men and women. We've only had a glimpse of that, and yet we can see what a holy thing that is. The great blessing that God placed us in a place where he can have access to us in a holy of holies, if you will, in this garden on this sanctified planet in the midst of this universe that he made is an amazing thing to consider. And as God uh, gave them liberty, gave them freedom, he gave them an opportunity to obey him or disobey. We'll begin our reading here, verses 1 through 5. I thank you for Jim for reading that earlier. I'm going to be reading from the New King James here, but I want to bring some things out as we read through the text. Verses 1 through 5 here in Genesis 3. Now the serpent was more cunning than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, Has God indeed said, You shall not eat of every tree of the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat the fruit of the trees of the garden. But of the fruit of the tree which is in the midst of the garden, God has said, You shall not eat it, nor shall you touch it, lest you die. And the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die. For God knows that in the day you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. The serpent was more cunning than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. The truth is in here that God has made the serpent. <laughs> this is a creature. Exactly what's going on here, I don't know. God hasn't told us a whole lot. In Revelation, if you want to turn there with me quickly, we do find out who this serpent is. <laughs> uh, whether this is a physical serpent, whether this is just some spiritual manifestation, I don't know. Like I said, there's so many books written on the things that God hasn't revealed. But what he has revealed, in Revelation chapter 11, I want to just look at verse 9. <laughs> the great dragon was cast out, that serpent of old, called the devil and Satan, who deceives the whole world. 
He was cast to the earth and his angels were cast out with him. By the way, Revelation 12 is not speaking of a moment before this that we're looking at in, in Genesis chapter 3. It's speaking of when Jesus resurrected, went up to heaven and cast out the accuser of the saints. Way after Genesis 3 in Job, Satan is up there accusing Job. <laughs> so he wasn't cast out before that. He wasn't cast out by here. Here, somehow, he has access. The spiritual creatures have access to the, the earthly realm, somehow. We do see angels interacting with humans, and we see demons interacting with humans. And here, somehow, Satan, clearly the reference in, in Revelation 12 is talking back to, to Genesis 3 here. Satan somehow has influenced this serpent or is using this serpent in some way and has come and been able to speak, <laughs> Now, here's a serpent who can talk. Who's a, here's a serpent who, when the curse comes, is going to be made to go on its belly, so maybe could walk or even fly. Is that possible? <laughs> the Chinese culture and language dates about 4,500 uninterrupted years. We can do our, our Bible uh, timeline, and that comes out to right about the Tower of Babel. <laughs> it's amazing to think about that. They kept themselves closed off and kept their language from about the Tower of Babel on. So many things in their language will reflect stories there in the book of Genesis. Here's a, a people that are Buddhist in a majority, and yet they have the stories of Genesis in their language. That's another study. <laughs> but I think it's interesting that the Chinese dragon <laughs> looks like a serpent with wings, doesn't it? <laughs> yeah, isn't that interesting that the dragon of the Oriental, and maybe even the Hebrew mind, would not be a Tyrannosaurus Rex with wings like we see a dragon when we think of them. It's a serpent. <laughs> and that's the concept that we've got going on here. A serpent that can speak, that has some intellect, and can move in some amazing ways, and will be limited later, and we'll see that in this afternoon's lesson. But here's the, the question. The serpent comes to the woman and says two questions. We only ever hear one, but there's two here. <laughs> The one we hear is, shall you not eat from every tree of the garden? But that's not the question. That's just the end. The question is, did God really say, fill in the blank. <laughs> the blank is, you can't eat all the trees. <laughs> that question that Satan asked the woman here, he continues to ask today. We've heard our friends say it. Did God really say, two people that love each other can't be married? So at first it was, this guy married the wrong woman. He loves her. Can't they be married? I mean, God's a God of love, right? He should leave her, and God will give him this woman. And we've heard that excuse. Well, I made a mistake. We got rid of that mistake early. She knew it was a mistake, too. This is the one God wants me to have. And we convince ourselves. Has God really said that's adultery? Yes, he has. Over and over and over. Has God really said two men that just love each other can't be together? Yes, he has. It's an abominable thing before the Lord. And that's the word he uses. It's an abominable thing. Has God indeed said that the woman is not the governing body over the man? Is not head over the man? Yes, he has. We may not like that in our feministic society, but that's what he says. We've got to understand that God is good. His order is good. And when things work the way they ought to, it is good. Our brother Sewell Hall years ago described this as having stop signs at a four-way stop. We recognize there's a need for that. There's somebody had to put order there or that would be a mess. 
When there's a relationship with people involved, somebody has to have the final word. There has to be a way to recognize that. We know that in government. That's why we have a president. That's why they longed for a king. It should be God who has the final word. But in a relationship between two people, somebody has to take on the burden of making the final decision and are dealing with the consequences of that final decision as well. And God said, that's the man's job. <laughs> now, it's not that he disregards the woman or the children. Not at all. A man who loves is going to consider their needs. He's going to submit himself to their needs. Jesus submitted himself to our needs. And he went to the cross. <laughs> And our model in Ephesians 5 of how men ought to love their wives is as Jesus loved the church and gave himself for her. So don't tell me that God made mistakes when he just developed the roles and designed things to be the way they are. Has God indeed said? That's the question. And we sometimes ask it as well because we want to justify something we want to do. And so we find a way around what God really said by saying, I don't think that's what he really meant. I know that's what he said. I've studied with people who will say, I know that's what the text says, but my pastor who has an anointing from the Lord says, that's not what he meant. <laughs> or, but in my heart, I know that's not right. That, that's just antiquated language. What it really meant is this. You be careful with that. <laughs> he has indeed said some things that challenge us because we are not good. God is good. <laughs> We're part of the broken world, and we're looking at things through a broken lens. The more we clear that image up by looking at what God actually said, then we can understand what is good, and our hearts can be conformed to his will. That's what we need. We need to be transformed. So the serpent asked, did God really say that? And so the question that he tacks on is that you shall not eat of every tree of the garden. Did God really say you shall not eat of every tree of the garden? Think about what God said. Freely eat of every tree of the garden. So the serpent has inserted a tiny little word. Freely do not, it's a do, but it's a do not, eat of every tree of the garden. And I want you to consider that theologically, philosophically, he's actually right. God said freely eat of every tree of the garden, except one. So he said you can't eat of every tree of the garden because there's one you can't eat of. I want you to notice what the serpent has done here. He's taken the freedom and the liberty that God has given and made it feel like a prison. You mean there's a tree you can't eat from? Did God really tell you that? See how he's withholding things from you? You mean you can't marry every woman that you fall in love with? You've got to stay with the same one your whole life? What a prison. There are people who believe that. <laughs> that marriage is a prison. It's a trap. <laughs> Those people are usually evolutionary minded and they think we've just got to propagate the species as much as possible and they really believe that. But it's disaster and our society is proof of it. <laughs> Why do you think there are so many mislabelings and misunderstandings about even who we are as sexual creatures? God made us as sexual creatures to be together with someone who completes us in that, not with just anybody. <laughs> We're not animals. We're not brute beasts as he describes some who followed their passions in the new testament the serpent says did god really say you can't eat of all the trees of the garden so you see how he very subtly twists the freedom that god gives to make it look like it's prison the woman responded sounds like she knew a lot of what she was talking about yes we can eat the trees of the garden all the fruit but of the fruit of the tree which is in the midst of the garden, God has said, you shall not eat it, nor shall you touch it, lest you die. Oh my. It worked. Satan has planted a seed, and it worked. 
Did God say, you shall not touch that tree? Did you notice that Eve said, God said, you shall not touch that tree? Did the Pharisees say, God has said whatever I might have given to my parents as Corbin? <laughs> Jesus said, you've rejected the word of God to keep the traditions of men. And establishing that as the word of God, your worship has become vain. How often do we do that? <laughs> we set up our traditions as though this is what God really said. So often I've studied with people who have come out of what they would call strong churches in Brazil. They've got a strong doctrine because men have just put a lot of rules on them. They've come out of that, but they still hold on to some of the traditions thinking, God said this. And I say, okay, show me where. Well, I know he said it, and they can't find it. And I say, he didn't say it. <laughs> your pastor said it. The traditions of your church said it. Show me where God said it, and then I'll believe you. And when you can't find it, then you believe what the text says. It's a hard thing sometimes to let go of. It's a hard thing to let go of what we think God said. We don't have any indication that God actually said that. What he said is, don't eat from that tree. What she has done is she's put a fence around that tree in her mind. I can't even touch it. So what happens is, and this is really subtle, as Satan begins to recognize, I'm going to call the serpent Satan from here on out, that's who it is. As Satan begins to recognize that he's shaken her faith, because now she's not just saying what only God said, she's added something to it, he realizes that's not faith. <laughs> that's her faith. That's not the faith God revealed. When he recognizes that, if he can get her to touch it and she doesn't die, she's going to be emboldened then to eat it. <laughs> and so some of these people we knew that came out of these churches with strong doctrines and they realized men made that, then they threw out the baby with the bathwater and threw out what God actually said and began to give themselves over to sin, thinking God didn't say we couldn't sin. Yes, he did. He didn't say you couldn't do all those things you had put as rules, but here is sin. I want to give you an example of that. I wasn't really planning to do this, but I want to share this with you because I think it's important. A person I was studying with in Brazil was engaged to be married, and her husband was part of one of these churches, these, these churches that are really strong in Brazil that have a lot of these just lists of doctrine you have to abide by if you're going to be a member of their congregation. And one of those is that men cannot wear shorts. Well, I wear shorts. They're long shorts. I'm not trying to be immodest. They're board shorts. I look for ones I can find the longest way down below my knee. And I was out at the park one day and ran into this girl and her husband and out in these long shorts. Well, I didn't know about that rule. He wouldn't look at me. Like, he kept turning away. And I was trying to invite him to come study with her. And I had invited him through her many times. And he wouldn't even look at me, wouldn't talk to me. And so the next study with his fiancée, I said, what in the world's going on? Why did Celso not even look at me? And she said, at his church, at our church, men don't wear shorts. That is not something men do. That is sensuality. And I thought, well, okay. I'll never wear shorts again if that's the issue. And so I quit just wearing shorts out in public because of that. But about two months later, they got married in a hurry. She was pregnant. <laughs> so his law about shorts <laughs> was an external. While he was fornicating with his soon-to-be wife, and they had to hurry and get married before anybody at church found out. You see the problem with creating a law that God didn't create? As Colossians, at the end of chapter 1, says that all these rules about don't touch, don't taste, don't use, they have no value at all against the flesh. 
They were training rules in the Old Testament to build the heart, to show the heart the direction to go in. But the law itself, those physical things, has no value against the indulgence of the flesh. It's when we listen to God's will and let it transform us that our hearts are changed and then the externals will follow. <laughs> but we try to do it the other way around. Religion says, do all these little things and maybe it'll change your heart. That is not the way God works. Start with his word. Let it work from your heart and the externals will follow. <laughs> But Eve's faith was shaken, and she began to see her words as equal to God's. God said, don't touch this tree, because I'll die. So the serpent, recognizing that the seed's been planted, says, you will surely not die. I want you to notice he did the same thing again. We sometimes think it takes paragraphs and paragraphs and paragraphs of theology to create a false doctrine. He's used the same little tiny word in, in the Hebrew. It's a, it's a word with a little vowel pointer on it that's like even two notches is all it is that makes the no. You will not surely die. Je Jesus, God, had said, you will surely die. He just added the not. You, uh, you shall not eat of every tree. God said, you shall eat. So he added the not. It's, it's a minimal thing in the Hebrew. That's all it took. And he changed the doctrine. He stood it on its head. He did it twice brazen by seeing her shaken faith and then to sell his minute little change he does create a theology it's not that you're going to die god knows that in the day you eat of it your eyes will be opened and you will be like god knowing good and evil that's the reason <laughs> and that's what always happens there's a minor change and then there's a theology built around the change Sometimes I call that theology a religion. <laughs> it's not that religion, in essence, is bad. God has given us things that are religious in their nature. But man-made religion is bad, and we usually make a religion to defend a wrong practice. That's what happens in what we see biblically. And that's what Satan has done here. God is hiding things from you. He doesn't want you to know what he knows. But if you eat from this, your eyes will be opened, and you'll be like God. Do you see the irony and what he says here, and what he offers, they're like God. In the way that God wants them to be like him, that's how he made them. But Satan says, here's a better way to be like God. Isn't that always the temptation? I want to know what God knows. I want to know more about demons and angels, because God knows about demons and angels. He didn't tell me about them. He's given me very little information, because I don't need to know about them for my salvation. I need to know to watch out for the demon. I need to know that angels are helping me, and God gives me details about that. But the rest, leave that up to God. I don't need to know more than God does about that. I could never know more than him anyway. But that's a temptation sometimes. As we create our religions, as we reject God's will to set up the traditions of men because we know better. God, that'll never work. That, that's not going to work with the young people today. We've got to have a rock band. You're never going to get young kids in with the gospel. God says... The gospel is the power of God's salvation for everyone who believes. <laughs> that includes young people. We're not, we don't give enough credit. We don't teach them the truth. We try to flower it up and, and you know, dumb it down. Read the Bible to young people. <laughs> Leviticus is where the Jews started with their kids. <laughs> Have you read Leviticus with your kids? Do it. Do it. It's fun. <laughs> it's good stuff. Okay. So... The serpent says you will not surely die. That's the second time he's just flat out changed what God said. God knows your eyes will be open. You'll be like God knowing good and evil. What? 
experience do Adam and Eve have in the garden? I don't know how long this took before this encounter here. But what would they know instinctively and naturally from all around them in the garden? Good. It is very good. Everything is good. What's the temptation? You also know evil. Eat from this tree. I want us to understand that that is the temptation that comes at us when we reach sort of adolescence. Mom and dad have created good. They've given us everything we need. They've sustained everything we need. But there's somebody out there, somebody I think is cool that's saying, this is not so bad. Try it. (laughs) Come with me and try it. (laughs) We do a disservice often to our children by just flat painting with a flat brush that everything out there is evil. There are good things out there. Sexuality is a good thing. Not something we want our adolescents involved in, but in marriage, it's excellent. And we need to teach that it's excellent. You know, Leviticus teaches that to the little kids in the Jewish society. <laughs> Chapter 18, read through it sometime. Do not uncover the nakedness of a bunch of people. Ooh, it's kind of explicit, but it's holy <laughs> and it needs to be taught. When we teach our children, sex is bad. And then they have their friends saying, sex is good. <laughs> Then the temptation for evil comes in, and that overtakes because we haven't taught what good really looks like. And we've lied to them in a sense. And then their faith is shaken in us and in what we might be teaching them from here because we've lied to them, in their minds at least, by not telling them all of the truth, by not showing them what God has said is good, by hiding some things from them. There are things that it's age-appropriate. I'm not saying just throw it all out. It's age-appropriate. God didn't give them access to the tree of uh, the knowledge of good and evil yet. It may have at some point. Jesus said to the apostles, there's things you're not ready for yet. They needed them soon, but wasn't ready yet. There are things that are not appropriate yet, but be laying the groundwork with holy, holy words. (laughs) That's what we need to be doing. So there's a temptation now to know some evil. Well, her faith is shaken in God. We've already seen that. She's making up things that God didn't say. So that's not faith. Romans 10, 17, faith comes by hearing. She didn't hear God say, you can't touch that tree. She thought that and then said, God said it. So her faith is shaken. When your faith is shaken, where do you go? You go to reason. You go to sensibility. You look around you and you analyze the world and think, this must be how it works. Now, the world's not broken yet, and she's still going to make some wrong observations. (laughs) Once it's broken, we can't help but make wrong observations. We can't see it clearly. But look at verse 6. Once you've dismissed God's word as the source of your authority, your experience and what you sense becomes authority. When she saw that the tree was good for food, of course it was. God made the trees that were good for food. And pleasant to the eyes, this was one of those double whammy trees. It's got gorgeous fruit and it's a gorgeous tree. It's beautiful and good for food. I can imagine it was. (laughs) She saw that, and it also would make her know things. She'd be wise. So she took of its fruit, and she ate. Think about that. She gingerly reaches out. I can't touch it. Satan says, yeah, you can. Do it. God was wrong. No, you were wrong, Eve. God never said that. God was wrong. So what if I eat it then? (laughs) And she eats it. It is a subtle game that Satan plays, and it's frightening. So she took an eight. Did you notice something there about the three things that are mentioned? She saw that it was good for food. She saw that it was pleasant to the eyes. She saw that it was desirable to make her wise. 
There's a temptation of the flesh. I need something to eat. God has let me have all these fruits, but this is the most gorgeous one. I mean, look at it. It's got diamonds on it or whatever it must have looked like. How come I can't have that one? Stolen bread is sweet, Proverbs says. This is what I can't have, but it's the one I want. It is beautiful. It sure does look good. Why would God deny me? I mean, if he's good, why would he deny me something that looks so good to me? Oh, boy, how many times has that been the excuse? Why would he deny this to me? And I'll know the things that God has not chosen yet to reveal. I'll be a Gnostic. I'll have some new information. Maybe we can do something about the way our situation is here. Won't have to always just kind of bow down before God. We'll say, we can do it too. Turn with me to Matthew chapter 4. There are a couple I could have chosen. Remember the temptations of Jesus? <laughs> now, since sin broke the world, he wasn't sent out into a garden to be tempted. He was sent out into a wilderness. <laughs> but he's the new Adam. He's the second Adam, as 1 Corinthians 15 talks about and Romans also mentions. And so he's going to go suffer the temptations that Adam suffered. But what were the three temptations? Do you remember? <laughs> if you are the son of God, command these stones to become bread. Don't you hunger? Isn't it good for food? You're out in the middle of the wilderness. You haven't eaten for a long time. The temptation of the flesh. The appetite of the flesh is used often for sexual appetite, for food appetite, for other types of appetites that, that drive our body to preserve itself in some way. And he says, if you really are the son of God, you'll do this thing. That's a temptation, isn't it? <laughs> and then after that, he says, uh, in Matthew's account, he's got them sort of upside down from the way I'm used to reading them. But he says, he took him up on, onto the, uh, uh, the holy city and set him on the pinnacle of the temple. This is Matthew 4, 5, and said, if you're the son of God, throw yourself down. It is written, he shall give angels, his, his angels charge over you, and in their hands they'll bear you up, lest you dash your foot against the stone. So Satan saw that Jesus was quoting from the scripture. I can quote scripture. And aren't you the son of God? If you are, he's not going to let anything happen to you. You know more than God does. I mean, you can read the scripture. Just throw yourself off here. <laughs> That's what people do. <laughs> they read some scripture and they throw themselves at it as though God owes them something. That is the prideful understanding of God's will and thinking I know more than God does. And Jesus said, I'm not going to tempt him. Uh -uh. <laughs> I'm not doing that. And the other is he took him up and showed him all the kingdoms, the beauty, it says, the beauty of all the kingdoms. This can all be yours. Doesn't your eye desire that? It's going to be his. It is his. He made it. <laughs> and it's going to be his as king when he dies for it, but not the way Satan's tempting him. But did you notice those are the same three things that Satan tempted Eve with? Isn't that incredible that at the beginning of the world, Satan had three things he could tempt somebody with. And then when Jesus comes in, millennia later, it's the same three things. Now go to 1 John 2. Maybe you're making this connection already, but maybe not. It took me a long time to see this, but it's so helpful once we do. 1 John chapter 2, verse 15. Do not love the world or the things in the world, if anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life is not of the Father, but is of the world. <laughs> when Satan tempted Eve, he had three weapons to use against her. <laughs> when he tempted Jesus, you don't think he would bring his whole arsenal? He brought three things. <laughs> 
And then John, writing at the close of the gospel age, said, this is what you need to watch out for. He's got three weapons. <laughs> Isn't that helpful? We can disarm Satan if we know where to look for his attacks. Now, he's crafty. He's going to find ways to even use all three of them sometimes. Jesus was tempted in every way, as we are, but without sin. We give in. Satan finds which one of those is ours, and boom, he's on that, and we're done. <laughs> he had to try every single thing with Jesus, and Jesus wouldn't give in. And he came every crafty angle there was, using Jesus' good friend Peter to say, yeah, that's never going to happen. Get behind me, Satan! Using his other good friend Judas to betray him with a kiss. <laughs> Using his own people to crucify him and say, come on, if you really are the son of God, doesn't that language sound familiar? <laughs> Satan speaking through these people. If you really are the son of God, come down off the cross. Come on now. You can be king without the cross. That's been the temptation all along. <laughs> Satan never quit. But it's three things. And if we will think about those three things, if we will protect our flesh, get plenty of sleep, Eat properly. <laughs> Devote yourself to the wife of your youth. <laughs> Don't let the appetites of the flesh run you. You use them in the capacity God has given them to you and take care of them. And they won't become temptations for you. And you'll recognize when Satan starts to try to use them against you. The lust of the eyes. Don't be tempted by every single thing you see out there. God has given you a bounty. Take advantage of what he's given you and use it well. <laughs> Protect your eyes from lusting after things that aren't yours and that shouldn't be yours, that God doesn't desire for you to have. And study your Bible. Humbly, humbly study it. Read through it. Let the text infuse you with God's knowledge. Don't go trying to create things and try to find an excuse for them in the Bible. If you'll watch out for those three areas, if you'll resist the devil, he'll flee from you. <laughs> That's the three areas. Think about any sin, anything you've stumbled with, any sin we see in the Bible, it's one of those three. Maybe a combination sometimes, but it's in there. We can disarm Satan. God has given us from the beginning the tools we need to close off Satan if we'll but learn from him. I love that. That is so helpful. At the very beginning, at the beginning of Jesus' ministry, and at the close of the gospel, that's all Satan's got. We can tell the Bible just reveals his secrets right away. That's all he's got. He feels like he's got more, but think about it. That's all he's got. So work on those three areas. But poor Eve, she didn't have anybody else's experience to work from. And she got hit with all three at once. So she gave in and she ate. And then she gives to her husband who's with her and he ate. And just as Satan had said, the eyes of both of them were open. You know, not everything Satan says is a lie. It's inconvenient truth sometimes. <laughs> Absolutely what he said would happen, happened. Their eyes were opened. And they saw what God did not want them to see. Yet they realized they were naked. And then they were ashamed of it. <laughs> ashamed of their nakedness? They'd been seeing that for a long time without shame. But now something is different. Something is evil within them now. <laughs> and so they covered themselves with fig leaves. Recently, studying through the book of Matthew, it's kind of interesting that Adam and Eve, when they sinned, they went to the fig leaf to get to the fig tree to get leaves. Jesus, when he's going in to Jerusalem, he went to the fig tree to get figs, and there were only leaves, and so he cursed it. <laughs> he didn't have any sin to hide. <laughs> Isn't that interesting that the two Adams both had to deal with fig trees early on? It seemed like an out-of-the-way little story about the fig tree there, but it's an important lesson. But it's interesting, Jesus 
he, he went to the wilderness and did what Adam couldn't do in the garden. <laughs> and then with the figs, he was in a different direction with that as well. It's just amazing, all these details. The eyes of both were opened. They knew they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together to make themselves coverings. I liked his reading earlier, loincloths. That's the idea. They've made little something to cover the intimate parts, and that's it. But for some reason, they recognize there's something shameful now about their intimate parts. Verse 8, they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And Adam and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. Can you imagine a sadder moment in human history? The good God who loves them, has abundantly blessed them, has made them for a special purpose, and is going to join them in this special purpose, in this special place. When they hear him coming, they run. Have no reason to fear God unless they've been doing what he said not to do. And he said the consequence for that is death. Maybe their knowledge also has brought them a little more close to understanding what that is. Verse 8, my version says they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden. Most other versions have that too. Verse 10 is interesting. The King James, again, I think this is one they actually got right. When... uh, God calls out to Adam. Adam says, I heard your voice in the garden. And I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. What sound did they recognize when God was coming to be with them? His voice. (laughs) That's the sound of God. You know, it's amazing that we've got the same thing that Adam and Eve had. We might think, wouldn't it have been great to have been in the garden? How do we recognize God's presence among us? It's his voice, isn't it? We hear the sound of the Lord walking among us. We should. When we're reading and studying and practicing his word, he's right here. He'll never leave us nor forsake us. That's what Jesus said. And how did he fulfill that promise? Sent the spirit to reveal his word so that even when the miraculous age was over, he's still with us. That's amazing to me. Well, they had sewed fig leaves together to make these aprons or loincloths for themselves. When they heard the Lord coming, what they couldn't do with the leaves, they tried to do with the entire tree. They hid behind the tree. It still didn't work. The Lord calls out to Adam, and I think this is a loaded question. Where are you? Where are you, Adam? Does God know where Adam is? Absolutely he knows where he is. Why ask this cynical kind of question then? Is God cynical? Where are you, Adam? Not at all. What is God's desire? He wants Adam. He wants Adam's heart. He wants Adam's repentance. And if there's going to be repentance, there needs to be confession. Triple <laughs> A knows that, or Triple A. Uh, uh, Alcoholics Anonymous and Narcotics Anonymous know that, don't they? At the beginning of everything, the person has to confess, this is my name and I am a drug user. I am an alcoholic. That's the confession. Because they understand that changes your heart. That humbles your heart to start with that. Repentance starts with confession. That's an important thing, and we need to recognize it. And God is calling at him. He made it easy. I'm so thankful for men that love me enough to hold me accountable with the struggles I have and come to me and say, where are you? (laughs) How are you doing? (laughs) You need to talk. It's so much easier than me having to seek them out. (laughs) I love it when men come and ask me how I'm doing. I need that. As a preacher, sometimes we don't get that. Everybody presumes the preacher and his family is just doing great. We're servants of God just like you are. We're struggling just like you are. We get the blessing of standing before you. 
but it's also a burden. <laughs> As we need you to come and say, how you doing? <laughs> Think about that. Brian, I'm sure, would appreciate that. And others, we need to be doing that with each other. God went to Adam and said, where are you? Adam answers, I heard your voice, and I was afraid because I was naked, and I hid myself. Are you hiding from God? Because <laughs> you're afraid? Because you know he sees everything? Hmm? We're open and naked to him to whom we must give account. That's what Hebrews says. <laughs> He's got his eyes on us anyway. We can't hide it from him. We're probably not doing as good a job of hiding it from each other as we think we are. <laughs> Let's be open and honest. Where are we? That's a great question. Where am I spiritually? <laughs> God wants me to think about that. He wants me to confess it. I'm not doing well. I need help. Eve, I need you, Adam needed to say. God, I need you. But he said, I was afraid because I was naked, so God asked him another question. Who told you that you were naked? Did you eat from the tree I told you not to eat from? Does God know the answer to this one? Yes, he does. I love it when the men who are asking me how I'm doing ask me specific questions about how I'm doing because sometimes I need that I try to beat around the bush I try to hide behind the tree and they say but how you doing right here in this area of your life are you doing well here are you trying to make me think you're doing well by throwing me off the scent I love it when people love me enough to challenge me to do better God loves me enough to challenge me to do better he challenged me in the biggest way by showing me the high cost of sin and sending his own son to die for me. That's a challenge to me. <laughs> Am I willing to die with him? <laughs> That's what he's asking me to do. Who said you were naked? Did you eat from that tree I told you not to eat from? He's giving him a second chance to come clean, to confess. And so, verse 12, we get Adam's quote-unquote confession. The woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me of the tree, and I ate. I want you to consider that a good confession never starts with somebody else. <laughs> it starts with I, I messed up, I sinned, I did wrong. When the I is at the end, that's not a confession. It's not. It's an excuse. <laughs> that's all it is. Did you notice what he did here? He didn't accuse Eve. He tried. <laughs> That's not where it landed. The woman you gave to be with me gave me of the fruit of the tree. And, I, and because of that, I ate. And I had to. I was forced to. <laughs> That's the way every sin ends up going. And because I was weak and whatever, God, you didn't give me an abundance and you didn't whatever. Yes, he did. <laughs> yes, he did. You never have an excuse for sin. Ever. I don't care. But that's what we try to do. <laughs> If I wasn't born this way, God, that's the excuse we most hear today. <laughs> or I don't even know what I was born as. But it's your fault, God. You made mistakes. God made you exactly the way you need to be <laughs> and what he wanted you to be. And you need to accept that. You might not like it, but you need to accept it. And when you do, it'll be good because God made you for good. The woman you gave to be with me, she gave me of the tree. And I ate. You think God didn't feel that across his face? And yet he doesn't respond to Adam yet. <laughs> he turns to the woman and says, 
What have you done? So her confession, quote unquote, is a little more noble than Adam's. The woman said, the serpent deceived me and I ate. It's not really my fault. I was deceived. I want you to consider that she did exactly what Adam did. (laughs) The serpent that you created (laughs) and gave intelligence and whatever deceived me. (laughs) Eve, who said that I told you you couldn't touch the tree? Was that the serpent? (laughs) It wasn't the serpent that deceived her. It was her lack of faith that was deceptive to her. Now, the serpent had a hand in that. But again, she didn't confess. She excused the confession was blame on the serpent. Adam's confession was blame on Eve and on God. Both of them really blamed God. I want you to think about what sin does in this microcosm that we have here. In the order of created things, in the way God made the order of creation, you have God, supreme God over all. He, he rules over all. His word is supreme. His, rule, his word governs. He made man to have dominion over all the fish, over all the plants, over all life. And he made the woman to govern at his side as a helper, but he's got government over her. So there's an order here. Man, I'm sorry, God, man, woman, governing over animals, including serpents. (laughs) Think about that. Later we're going to judge angels. They're created beings. Somehow, they're actually lower than us. They were made, Hebrews 1.14, to serve those who will inherit salvation. They're servants. Now, right now, we don't see it that way, but that's what the Bible says. In some way, they were made to serve us. We don't get to command them. God's the one commanding them. And yet, there's a hierarchy there. But what happened with sin? Think about this. The serpent creature gave a command Eve obeyed, coaxed her husband into doing it, and they all blamed God. (laughs) It's exactly inverted. Exactly inverted. And I want want you to consider that every time that we sin, we've broken nature and inverted it. Every time. (laughs) Every time our excuse is going to be, it's God's fault. If he hadn't made the rules too stringent, (laughs) if he didn't make the world the way it is, whatever it is, we've put Satan, a creature, up here. And we've listened to him and we've inverted the order and God's being blamed. That's clearly what we see happen here. The very first sin. They weren't even dealing with a broken world yet. It's about to happen this afternoon, God willing, we'll have a look at that. But what a mess. (laughs) Because of a lack of faith. Because of not trusting in the good God and his good word in the good way that he handed it down. Boy, we need to change the way we approach the word of God. (laughs) Today we need to. He said to the woman, what have you done? And she said, I was deceived. In the New Testament, Paul picks up on this as he's reminding men and women of their roles. He says, the man wasn't deceived. Think about what that actually means. The woman was deceived. He's not giving her an excuse. But what he's saying is, the man was worse. He knew better and went ahead and chose to do anyway. Eve knew better as well. But she used this deception, this, she claimed deception here. The man never even tried to claim that. He knew full well what he was doing. Men, we'll take a hit for our wives. <laughs> but don't let it be sin. Don't let it be sin. You want to present her.
before him without spot, without wrinkle, that she may be glorious before the Lord. That's what Ephesians 5 said. That's what Jesus did for the church. He took a hit for the church, but no sin. And that's what we need to be willing to do. Adam took a hit for his wife here, I think. He saw that she had already bitten. Maybe he wanted to be like she was, or maybe he just wanted to be with her in what she had done. Whatever it is, in the New Testament, when men are told they'll be the ones doing all the leadership in the church, it's a burden on their shoulders because they chose to do what they weren't supposed to do. Women seems like they'd be much better communicators. Well, they're certainly given a gift for that, but it's not their role to be leaders in communicating God's will. <laughs> they do that as they're raising their children for him. They do that as they're encouraging their husbands for him. But the men, we've got to shoulder this burden. We've got to get the word out, and we've got to be teaching it publicly because that's the burden that God has given us. He asked Adam, where are you? Although he knew. <laughs> he knows where all of us are. But he's asking, where are you? Are you listening to his word? Is it good to you? It's been fun sharing these things. It feels good. But what will determine if it's good is what we do with it when we walk out of here. <laughs> what we do for the rest of the days. Once the newness of hearing these things in this way wears off, will it still be good? Or will our faith be shaken by this broken world that we're in, by Satan coming and saying, did God really say that? Were you listening right? That, that can't be. The world over and over is going to say, that's not the God you want to believe in. <laughs> yes, it is. He's the only good thing. <laughs> He's the only good that we have. And we've got to straighten this world out with good, not by succumbing to the evil. Adam and Eve had a good world around them and succumbed to evil. We've got a horrible, corrupted world around us, but we've got something they didn't have. <laughs> the rest of the story and the sacrifice that's already been made so that we don't have to give in to evil we don't have to. We've got a clear path out. That's what Jesus is offering. He's offering forgiveness for those who have given in. And he's offering a clear path to God for those who are willing to follow. Won't you join us as God is calling out, where are you? Won't you confess? You're not where you need to be if that's the case. Won't you come to the Lord and say, I want to be where you are. I want to walk with you in the garden of delights. I don't want to be left behind. I don't want to be hiding anymore. Help me, Lord. Won't you come if you have a need, make your need known. We're going to stand and sing this song for your encouragement and your obedience.